Welcome to Menopause Reimagine. I'm your host, Andrea Donsky. I'm a health expert for more than 23 years, a nutritionist for more than 16 years who's in menopause, and menopause educator and researcher. I'm also the co-founder of WeAreMorphous.com, a company that helps you reimagine menopause so that you can empower yourself to take control of your health and your symptoms. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Thomas Pearls. He's among the international leaders in the field of human exceptional longevity. He's the founder and director of the New England Centenarian Study, the largest study of centenarians and their families in the world. He's also a principal investigator of the NIA-funded Long Life Family Study. Dr. Pearls is amazing. I'm doing this intro after I actually interviewed him, and you are going to love this interview. You are in for a treat. So without further ado, here's Dr. Pearls. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Pearls. Thanks a lot, Andrea. I'm really excited that you're on because I reached out to you because I was doing research for my book that I'm writing on menopause and something, a topic that's just been so near and dear to my heart is women who had babies over the age of 40, because I had my youngest who's now 12 at 41. So I'm 53 right now. And when I saw that the work that you're doing, I was, I was like, wow, oh my gosh, like I've been so excited to actually speak to you because I remember years ago that I was in my teens. Okay. So this is how far back this this topic interests me. I was in my teens. I read a study or I read research that said that women who have babies in their forties tend to live longer. And I remember at that point, I must've been 18 or 19 years old. I'm like, I'm going to have a baby in my forties. Like that was like something that I determined. This was like back then, obviously, if I was able to do so, and I was going to have a baby at 40. Unfortunately, I lost that baby early on in the pregnancy. And then I ended up having Abby at 41. So I would love you to do a quick introduction as to who you are and what, like, what got you interested in, in longevity? Sure. I'm a professor of medicine and geriatrics uh, at Boston University School of Medicine. I've been here since 2002, a long time. Uh, before that, I was doing geriatrics um, and, and getting interested in the study of centenarians while I was at Harvard Medical School, okay. and um, it, you know, I got interested in older people actually as an orderly in a nursing home when I was 16 years old, okay. and was pretty interested in going into medicine even then, and have really, uh, I fell in love with older people back then, and it's stuck with me ever since, um, in the process of doing my geriatrics fellowship at Harvard, I was scrounging about for a research project and had a couple of centenarian patients that I was uh, taking care of in addition to a much larger panel of older folks in this uh, three-tiered community that included everything from people with dementia to being totally fine, really, except just living in the active retirement part of the community right and these two centenarians were in the active part i'd never met a centenarian i thought the older you get the sicker you get so they would be among my sickest patients and the opposite emerged and that made all kinds of alarm bells go off that i was seeing something that was outside my training really in terms of this idea the older you get the sicker you get so that's kind of where the study of centenarians started. And now I run the largest study of centenarians in the world. 
that's absolutely amazing. So tell us, so can you share some of the research that you've done? So I'm just going to let you talk because you, you know, you're what you, what you've done is so incredible. So just please, you know, tell us. Well, of course, we're going to center our attention uh, on a couple of things. One is women. And uh, by virtue of the group that I study, I study mostly women, 85% of centenarians are women and only 15% are men. And um, I think fairly early on, we discovered that centenarians at the least markedly delay disability towards at least their early to mid 90s. And among those who live to even older ages beyond 100, uh, there's a group of people say who get to 105, who not only are independently functioning at 100, but they don't really have any diseases at 100 either. Um, these are kind of our creme de la creme right. survivors. Um, we have a 112 year old in the study right now who is living by herself. Um, wow. I, I talk to fairly regularly who's completely cognitively intact. And we're extremely interested in, for example, why she shows no signs of Alzheimer's disease. And we, our studies are really more about not how to get a lot of people to extreme old age, but how they markedly delay or escape aging-related diseases and how they are this human model of healthy aging. And we want to understand the underpinnings of why they age so slowly and why they markedly delay and escape aging-related diseases towards the very end of their lives. You know, as a nutritionist, I've been a nutritionist for more than 16 years and a healthy living advocate. It's what my passion, it's what I've been doing for the last 23 years. So I have to ask, what role, so I would love you to obviously share what some of those reasons are that is allowing them or for the reasons that they're living that long, but what role does nutrition, lifestyle, like all of these things that we hear about all the time play? when it comes to living a longer life? So I think it's critically important actually for what we would say is average life expectancy. So what is average life expectancy for our listeners? Um, it's around 90, uh, which is rather eye-popping to me. Um, if we do everything right, I think humans generally have the blueprint, the DNA, if you will, to allow them to get to 90. Hmm. But that's called taking advantage of your genes, the average set of genes. And the people that really tell us that message are Seventh-day Adventists, uh, who have a religion that basically believes that God's given us this body, uh, this remarkable body, um, and to do bad things to it really is squandering that gift. And so they have health-related behaviors that um, really take advantage of that gift and, and rather than fight it. Those behaviors are they tend to be vegetarian. They don't smoke. They don't drink alcohol. They regularly exercise. And they tend to spend time with family and religion in a way that seems to manage stress better. Hmm. But the diet component of that being vegetarian, I think 
the key there is probably avoiding red meat, which there's a lot of studies to show how that increases one's risk for cardiovascular and cerebrovascular disease and other diseases as well. Um, but the combination of a, probably a vegetarian diet and maybe more Mediterranean diet, other studies would show, um, along with a diet and exercise that's conducive to being at a healthy weight um, is really, really important. And that, so the vast majority, I'd say about 75% of the variation in how old people live to be to around age 90 is explained by their health-related behaviors. And only 25% are differences in their genetics. Um, but what we've discovered in some other groups is that when, you're, when you set your sights a bit higher, that is to 100 and older, then genetics begins to play a stronger and stronger role. So that by the time you're looking at what we call supercentenarians or people 110 and older who are very, very rare, it's probably more like 75% of the ability to get to that age is going to be some really amazing combinations of genes. Hmm. Um, and getting those combinations is very rare, like winning the lottery is very, very rare. Um, and uh, the other, th I just want to mention the other side of the coin. There's a lot of people who pass away in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I would say that the vast majority of that is explained by their health behaviors. So whether they are obese um, because of bad diet and, and not exercising, they smoke, they drink too much, if they're totally stressed out, they're not getting enough sleep, right. that all would make very good sense that they're passing away at those younger ages. So, for, so from what I'm hearing is nutrition, lifestyle, those play a massive role. What I, what I do want to kind of touch on is the whole red meat thing, because I don't, you know, for me as a nutritionist and following a lot of the health experts out there and also being in menopause myself, I, so from what I understand that if you're referring to, is it the saturated fat in the red meat that you're referring to as being the issue? I see you're smiling, so you know where I'm going. Yeah. <laughs> Not, maybe. I think it's a complex answer. And uh, with, there, you know, um, aging has many different inputs in terms of what leads to getting older. And um, you know, it has to do with DNA repair, free radical damage, the ability to fight that damage, um, a decreased fidelity or ability of mitochondria to efficiently produce energy from all that food um, and oxygen. And uh, uh, you know, there's like at least I can name 15 different major inputs that people are studying either in isolation or in combination. Um, and uh, so the answer as to what's going on with red meat uh, could involve things like saturated fat, though I don't think so, so much. And what I'm going to say is controversial, um, but 
pretty interesting and it, it there's data to show that it's the iron content in red meat okay. that um, could be playing a really important role. Iron is a key and critical part of some chemical reactions, the Fenton reaction and the Weber reaction, which, is, which are these reactions that happen in our cells, these chemical reactions that are uh, that produce these oxygen-free radicals, which are these really pretty toxic molecules that can glom onto uh, cell membrane, DNA, a whole bunch of different cellular structures and accelerate their destruction. There's some good things for free radicals. Um, some of our immune cells employ free radicals to kill off things like bacteria and viruses. Um, so if iron, and there aren't too many things in our diet that provide what is called um, bioavailable iron. Uh, the whole thing with Popeye uh, and eating spinach and spinach being a big source of iron, that iron and spinach really doesn't get into our system. It's not bioavailable. The stuff that's really bioavailable comes from the iron that's in red meat and also in some shellfish like oysters and, and clams and so on. And uh, if you're, it's a simplistic hypothesis, I wanna say upfront, so it's probably not simple. And, um, but having more iron in your diet may mean um, more free radical damage and leading to these oxygen free radicals, atherosclerosis, uh, oxidation of fats that lead to the plaque in our blood vessels um, and a few other things. So, uh, you know, cultures and that and certain people who avoid red meat have markedly reduced uh, rates of um, cardiovascular disease and cerebrovascular disease. Uh, so I try to eat maybe red meat once a week at most, okay. um, maybe once every couple of weeks. But there's one really interesting thing. Um, one of the people have long thought that one of the reasons women live longer than men is estrogen mm -hmm. and, and some benefits of estrogen. There's been a lot of evidence to show that probably is not one of the key factors in helping women live a lot longer than men. But the other thing that, and, and you know, what they were seeing was that menopause, you see estrogen disappear and that women's car risk for stroke and cardiovascular disease starts to become similar to that of men. And so they thought, oh, well, it must be the lack of estrogen. Well, the other thing that happens when women go through menopause is they stop menstruating yeah. and they stop being iron deficient. And it could be really interesting if one of the reasons um, women do better than men is that they're iron deficient for a really long time. And so they're producing fewer free oxygen free radicals. I love this. First of all, okay, I love this. And I'm so happy. I'm going to, okay, to everyone who's listening who knows me, they know that I'm very passionate <laughs> about learning new things. So, number one, that's fascinating to me. And I'm going to unpack that in a second. 
but I'm going to say, I'm so happy to hear what you said. And it's not controversial, by the way, in on our podcast, because I've been doing this a long time. I've interviewed so many incredible experts, Dr. Johnny Bowden being one of them who wrote 15 books on cholesterol. He's called the cholesterol myth. And he's written 15 books. One of the most passionate people, he's 76 years old, looks incredible. And he has busted a lot of myths regarding, you know, you know, the saturated fat thing. So it's not controversial on our podcast. So I love to hear that you're saying that. And I love to hear that you're actually looking at it from a different point of view. So the iron thing, fascinating to me. And here's what I always say to women who are listening to our, or to anyone who's listening to our podcast, as we go into menopause, because we're not menstruating, iron can get stored in our body much more easily. So anybody who's using cast iron or taking supplements with iron, I always advise against it. And I'm like, go to your doctor, go get your blood tested. You got to make sure you want to make sure your ferritin levels are at a certain level. Otherwise then you're losing hair and you're exhausted. Right. So, and I actually would like to hear that from you in terms of what those iron levels should be for us, but I'm, I'm, I'm blown away right now. Like I love hearing what you're saying. So let's continue that for a second. So, and I'm happy you said that you eat red meat just once a week, because for those of us, we need actionable steps right? So we hear from so many people do this, do that. And I come from the mindset of like, let's get the information. Everybody do what's good for them. We're not going to tell anybody what to do, but I love that you said that you eat it once a week or, you know, maybe once a month. So for us who are listening, for all of us who are listening, we're like, okay, so if I still love my steak or I want to eat something that has, you know, that has red meat, is that once a week? Okay. Or is it making sure we go get our blood tested to know what our ferritin or our iron levels are, and then kind of adjust accordingly. Well, um, so, you know, I, I, I think it, for people who like the taste of red meat, um, that, and we know that it's bad for us, the, the idea is to do things in as much moderation as you possibly can. And, and you know, quality of life is important. And um, if you do some things that just really impair the quality of life, uh, there, there could be some ramifications to that too, in terms of your life expectancy and, you know, and, and yeah, just quality of life. Um, so uh, it works out for me that I probably do it between once a week to once a month. And if I really had my druthers, I would cut it out completely. Um, but you know, you're going out to dinner with friends and there's sometimes it's just not possible to avoid it. As far as levels, so uh, my wife, Leslie, also had uh, Travis at age 41. And uh, prior to then, um, she ran pretty low hematocrits. Uh, I would say, um, even low 30s, with normal being around 39 to 45 or so. Okay. Um, to the point that like doctors wanted to do bone marrow biopsies and stuff. I mean, it was crazy making. She was and is probably one of the healthiest people I know and, um, and did great at those low lowish hematocrit levels and um and even you know it i remember her passing clots you know during menstruation and um 
and back then I really didn't know that much about centenarians and menstruation and low hematocrits and stuff. But by the way, Leslie's mom lived to 100, her dad lived to 99, and she had an aunt who lived to 104. And I'll bet you my bottom dollar that her, and her mom had her at age 42, okay? Wow. So, I mean, this stuff can run pretty strongly in families. And, um, and I never, to get to your question about levels, I don't pay attention to numbers all that much. What I do is I pay attention to the health of the person and how they're feeling. Okay. And, you know, if she's climbing mountains and riding bicycles and going upstairs just fine without getting short of breath and not tiring easily um, with a hematocrit of 31, you know, go for it. Um, I'm not going to interfere with that. I'm not going to treat a number. I'm going to treat how the person is feeling. On the other hand, if you've got um, a daughter who's in her teens and she's menstruating to beat the band and is passing clots and her hematocrit is low and she's not doing as great as she should on the soccer field and, and in the differential it, um, is a low hematocrit um, because of all that heavy bleeding, then one might start thinking about an iron supplement. And I totally agree with you about the danger of, for example, people going to surgery and getting a hip repair and they lost a pint of blood during surgery and they automatically get on an iron pill. Um, and that's certainly better than getting a unit of blood, a transfusion, I think. Mm -hmm. But then after they are feeling okay, you should stop the iron. I see too many patients just continue on the iron and, and that needs to be stopped. So. I'm not going to give you a number to go by. I think it's a lot better to just get a feel for how the person is doing um, and if any of their symptoms could be attributable to a iron deficiency anemia um, and go on from there. I think the, the, for us, you know, who are in this stage of life and so a lot of the symptoms, I do a lot of research on menopause symptoms. And a lot of women are losing their hair or fatigue is the number one, 71% of women in this lifestyle. According to the research, we did a survey, an observational anecdotal research survey with over 2,700 women who responded to the survey. And the number one symptom is fatigue. Yep. Now we know a side effect of low iron can be fatigue or hair loss, right? Or all the different things, the, the brittle fingernails. I guess when I ask the question of a number, it's more just because it's it's more on the high end of it, let's say, for example. So, you know, we know also when it comes to thyroid health, there's the normal and then there's the optimal ranges. So I think when I ask that question, it's because for us being in this stage, it's an important way for us to measure. So we know a lot of us aren't feeling so great in this stage of life, but is it because of our low iron or is it because of our thyroid or is it like, so I think that's when I ask that question, why I'm looking for that answer. And I know it, you know, it's not something if you can give us, I understand that, but I think it's kind of a way to help give um, an actionable step for women to understand to at least a starting mm -hmm. point of what they can do so they can go to their doctor and say, okay, her doctor polls, brilliant. I love the interview. Like, I'd like to get my, you know, and, and I'd like to know what tests that you, you, you're mentioning hematocrit, like what are these tests that we're, we're speaking to, we're asking our doctors for, and then when they get back the test, because a lot of doctors don't have knowledge about menopause or perimenopause, 
I always empower my our we are all about Morpheus is all about empowering women to take charge of their health and their symptoms mm-hmm. in this stage of life. How do we empower our listeners to understand what that number, what that value is, like so that they can move forward to say, you know, and that's really what I'm looking for more. Yeah, and I I think it's really about the differential diet, what we say the differential diagnosis. And and sometimes it's going to be more than one thing. Okay. And um and when the doctors are looking for iron deficiency, when they're wondering about iron deficiency um, for things like being tired or short of breath going upstairs, um, they're going to look for what indices or markers of iron deficiency anemia. And that would be, for example, um, a uh, looking, to, first of all, to see if the hematocrit is lower than normal. And for a woman who's no longer menstruating and no longer losing blood, um, then if she does have a low hematocrit and then also is found to have a low iron um, and then also something called microcytosis, which is where the red blood cells are smaller because of the lower amount of iron. If all those things are happening, um, then one starts getting worried about iron deficiency anemia. But in the absence of losing blood from menstruation, then the doctor would be worried about, well, why are they still iron deficient? Mm-hmm. Now, in significantly older women, uh, we can, there can be something called atrophic gastritis, for example where the lining of the stomach changes so that it becomes more difficult to absorb iron. And there's some, uh, one might even go to a gastroenterologist to have to address that. Um, And then there's certain vitamins like B12 and what have you that also don't get absorbed that could help be playing a role, decreased folate and so on. So it's really about differential diagnosis and, um, I guess the other thing that we get worried about besides um, atrophic gastritis would be, unfortunately, something like losing blood from somewhere else, like from the colon. Mm. And that could be something as benign as hemorrhoids to something more significant like a polyp or even colon cancer. And then getting a um, colonoscopy maybe in order. So, uh, you know, kind of um, getting all the data, coming up with a pretty good differential diagnosis and and trying to understand the causes, I think. Um, and then once you, you know, if I know people want to pay attention to diet and, um, and look for the m- most benign intervention as well. Um, and... I think probably listening to you is a pretty good idea about all those different possibilities in terms of the range of interventions and so on. So what are the blood tests to ask our doctors for? So we, I always say that there's always like three main uh, blood tests. I tell our listeners to go and get done the vitamin D our thyroid, the six thyroid tests, as well as your, well, there's four more than that vitamin D, the B12 ferritin, and then um, our thyroid. So, but when we're talking about iron in particular, what are we asking our doctor to test? Well, they're going to 
look for three things. One's called the iron saturation, okay. transparent, and iron. And it can be pretty complicated, the interpretation of those tests, but that's what, those are the tests that they would be doing. Sometimes people's ferritin can be high because it's something called an acute phase reactant. And so when they have a cold or, or some other infection, um, the, the ferritin can be elevated. And I wouldn't let that alarm anyone. It's really common to be elevated. But um, if the transparent saturation is low and the iron is low, then we start thinking pretty seriously about iron deficiency. But again, in, in a woman who's not menstruating, then we would be trying to figure out where they're losing the iron or where they're not absorbing the iron. For women who are menstruating, again, I think the caution is don't let a doctor just put you on iron okay? because that could actually be bad for you. And running around with a low iron is probably good for you to a point as long as you're not symptomatic from it. Um, and then for people who are no longer menstruating, um, you know, again, the hypothesis is that their hematocrits, their iron levels start approaching that of what's normal for men. And there's a concern that the, um, having higher levels of iron may be playing a role in your increased risk for cardiovascular disease and heart disease that you didn't have before because you were menstruating. Okay. And in the absence of any pathology, um, so if you're running normal crits, what would you do about that? Well, maybe being vegetarian and avoiding red meat would help you lower your iron a little bit. I do something, I donate blood every mm -hmm. eight weeks. Yeah. Uh, really, uh, not that. just to be altruistic, but to get my iron level down. And again, there's, I don't think there's solid proof for this, but I certainly don't see the harm in giving a unit of blood every eight weeks. I think that's a socially a very important and good, good thing to do. And if by the chance, by the way, if I have a physiologic benefit from that, then all the better. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And now what about, what about chicken? What about turkey? What about other forms of meat? Because you, you mentioned vegetarian, and then you're, you're mentioning red meat. One of the things for women in menopause and perimenopause that we advocate for, well, not advocate for, but we've seen in the research, and also, and I'll talk for me personally, I, cr I, I crave protein, and I crave animal protein. And I, it's hard to get a lot of protein, we need at least 30 grams of protein per meal for the majority of us. I'm kind of just averaging it out here. And it's hard to get that through a vegetarian or a vegan diet. So I, I'm very much, and I've noticed, and I was just saying this the other day, I was telling someone, I'm like, if I don't get that 30 grams of protein per meal, I'm hungry, I'm crave, and my cravings kick in, like, you know, and also obviously for our blood sugar regulation and our muscles and all the other good things too. So I guess my question would be, and I just want to be clear on that just from your research, because you're the, you're the expert from the centenarian standpoint, would that include chicken and turkey as well? Or, you know, is it just really the more the red meat that we're looking at? No, I think there's plenty of other sources. Fish would be a really important source. And yeah. I think that um, points to what 
a lot of experts, at least in improved average life expectancy, advocate for, which is a Mediterranean diet. Omega threes. And that would be, you know, fish and lots of vegetables, legumes, nuts, and things like that. There's some protein in nuts as well. Mm -hmm. Um, There's tofu. I am sure you've covered all of this. (laughs) Um, And... You know, studying centenarians, I also want to be clear, we have centenarians who have terrible habits, Mm, okay? And yet they still are cooking along at 100 and older, um, probably because they have some really amazing genes that combat their result of bad behaviors. And if they didn't have those bad behaviors, they'd probably be aging even better. But... um, I don't think centenarians are that great of a group to learn about the right behaviors, the right diets, and so on. Because really, I think so much of this becomes genetics. And getting to the genetics a little bit and the menopause story and the iron story, when when you're thinking about... um, if there are genes that help you age more slowly and decrease your risk for aging-related diseases, what would be the selection pressure? What would be the evolution pressure for helping people age more slowly and decrease their risk for aging-related diseases? Because scientists that look at lower organisms, or you know, they would say all bets are off after an animal stops reproducing. Um, because the whole, the, the, the end game in evolution and the selection for different genes um, has to do with having as many kids as you possibly can so that you have a greater chance of passing your genes down to the next generation. Yeah. Well, what got us pretty interested in the um, idea that middle-aged mothers live longer, that there were women... Um, in their early 40s, uh, having babies among our centenarians. You know, you you look back and when they had their kids. Um, And just to finish our finding, what we found in this article that we published in Nature was that about 20% of the centenarian women had children after the age of 40. And compared to about 5% of, you know, if you, if you reverse the math, what we found was that women who had naturally had kids after the age of 40, that is without any fertility assistance and what have you, right. they had about a five times greater chance of living to 100 hmm. compared to women who stopped having kids in their early 30s, for example. And from an evolution point of view, that made sense to us because one way to have more kids is to have a longer period of time in which you can have them. So if you stop, if you have menopause or you stop having children in your early 30s, you're going to have less of a chance of having kids compared to if you, if you were able to do that throughout your 30s into your early 40s. So if you have genes that get selected to slow down, to, to actually enhance the aging of the reproductive system, 
that slow down the aging of the reproductive system, decrease your risk for diseases that impact upon reproduction, then you're going to be able to have kids for a longer period of time. And the genes that impact upon the reproductive system uh, aren't going to just affect the reproductive system. It's going to affect the rest of your body as well. And so we've came up with this theory that the selective pressure for genes that, de that allow people to get to 100 is driven by this pressure to have a longer period of time during which women have children. And oh, Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, what are some of these genes? Like, I, I'm very fascinated with genetics, and I interviewed, I don't know if you're familiar with the DNA company. So I interviewed Cash yep. Khan. He, yeah, he's the CEO of the company. And um, so we've talked, we've covered genetics a lot, and I'll put links to it below as well. So what are some of these genes that you are looking at that you found that are helping? Uh, some of the genes I mentioned early on uh, in our conversation, like DNA repair, um, superoxide dismutase, which is a which is a gene that Sorry. produces substances that combat free radical damage. Um, there's a wide range of different genes. When we did some studies a while ago now, looking for the genes that the centenarians, even older people, 105 and older, have in common. Um, there's probably about 200 different genetic variants that they have in common that would allow them to get to these very old ages. And it makes sense that it would be so many different genes because there's so many different um, cellular processes, biochemical reactions and what have you that are playing a role. Each of those has many genes involved. So it's a very complicated genetic story. Um, but I, and it, it is this notion, it turns out that one of the things that differentiates women from men is that they have two X chromosomes. Men have just one. And there are a lot of these genes that play a role in the health of the reproductive system are on the X chromosome. And lo and behold, they do involve things like DNA repair and combating oxygen-free radicals. So we pay a lot of attention to the X chromosome when we're looking for genetic variants associated with the ability to get to these most extreme ages. I find genetics fascinating. And you're mentioning this and I'm thinking, well, I know that we talk a lot about genetics and you're born with your, with your, with your genes, you can never change them. But then what role does genomics play? in terms of, and I'm guessing big because you're saying nutrition and lifestyle, which is what we talked about right. before, but what role does it play really? It sounds to me, what you're saying is for people who are centenarians or who are living those, you know, the super centenarians, I think is what you, you refer to them as, um, that genetics really kind of at that point are really the, the key factor. Well, getting to a hundred is pretty rare, about one per 3000 in our population is a centenarian, okay. but one in 5 million becomes a, is 110 or older. And the, those, and, and getting the right combination of genes is extremely rare for getting to 110. And that's why those individuals are so rare. Yeah. I, I think that at that point, genes are just playing a really, really important role at those most extreme ages. At the younger ages, again, around 90, it's about 75% is gonna be your health-related behaviors. By the time you're looking at people around 100, 
maybe it's more like 65% or so. Um, and the, you know, it's, it keeps going up, up, up. Um, the, so it, it turns out this whole question about when people are able to have kids and tell you know what the oldest age is when they go through menopause um all of that biology is probably playing a really important role in the genetics of these most these getting to these really old ages and i think um the evolution of these genes is really all very female based um and men are kind of just the bystanders <laughs> Uh, which is pretty interesting. I remember thinking that my, I don't know when my mom went into menopause because she had a hysterectomy and um, early on, I think she was 49. And um, I remember thinking to myself that I wonder if I'm going to push menopause off by having a baby in my forties. And it was something, I don't even know where I got that idea, but I thought, oh, well, if I have a baby in my forties and, you know, I won't go into menopause until a lot later. And I ended up going into menopause around 49 or 50. I still don't even know exactly. And that's a whole other story. So I guess my question is, is, and you were saying if you're going into menopause in your thirties. So I guess I wasn't that far off in terms mm. of my thinking, which I find pretty fascinating actually. So that's, you know, well, again, I think I actually think, you know, this much better than I do, but Menopause itself is genetically really tightly controlled, that the variation in the age that women go through menopause, my impression has been, has been pretty tightly, is pretty tightly controlled, and is usually around an average of about 52 or so. And, but where there's quite a bit of variation is, um, again, this age at which women can have children. And even if you, and, and, and even if most women are going through menopause at age 52, the variation as to how old they are when they last have a child or can have a child is pretty broad. And it, it's not, I don't think it's all that tied to this pretty tightly controlled age at which they have menopause that there's a whole bunch of other factors going into the health of the reproductive system that's playing a role as to when they last can have a child. The, the question of whether having a child later in life drives up your opportunity to get to 100, I don't think it does. I think it's just a marker that when we, were look, when we look at our centenarians, they, they were going to reap their the time of reproduction when there was no fertility assistance science wise yeah. you know there was no estrogen there was nothing you could take it so we pretty much had this really great experiment where we could just look at the effect of of natural menopause and we just like kind of even your own experience we couldn't ask a hundred year old when did you go through menopause because it happened 50 years ago and getting a really good idea of when they went through menopause was pretty impossible. But we could tell when they last had a kid. And that was, we knew they weren't in menopause when they had a kid. 
So that was our best marker of the health of their reproductive system. And that's how we figured out that these centenarian women were having kids later in life. But it's just a marker. I don't think it's the act itself. It's just a marker of the health of the reproductive system at that point in time. And, um, and it tells us, again, that these w women were likely able to have children at older age because they were aging so slowly and they didn't have diseases that would impact upon the reproductive system like di diabetes and cardiovascular disease. You, I know a lot of your research has been around cognition, like cognitive health and Alzheimer's. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that was what got us, got me interested in the centenarians in the first place. That the first two centenarians I met were completely cognitively intact. And that went against everything I had been taught up to that point. That Alzheimer's disease, um, unfortunately, hits about half of people at age 85. And it increases in, in its incidence after that. And so you would expect that if you got to 100, everybody would have Alzheimer's. And yet I had these two individuals who definitely did not. And we've since found that about 20% of our centenarians are cognitively intact. And those are the ones who go on to be 105 or 110. Right. Being cognitively intact is our number one predictor of the centenarians continuing to age well. When we start to see some impairment, that's when we start to get worried about their, their future life expectancy. Um, and, you know, if, if the average age of onset of Alzheimer's disease is in your early 80s, and that on, by on average, centenarians are living independently at around 93 or 95, they're at the least, almost all of them, markedly delaying Alzheimer's until their mid-90s. And again, some of them escape it. And I would say that's one of the main reasons we study centenarians is as these models of healthy aging and decreased risk for Alzheimer's and to try and understand the underlying reasons of how and why they do that. And um, we don't have the answers yet. We're still looking at that. We have several large grants looking not only at avoiding Alzheimer's completely, but also being resilient to it as well, where you may have some predispositions to Alzheimer's, but you never exhibit it because of some kind of resilience that we're still trying to figure out. Would that be something like the APO4 gene? So the E4 gene increases the risk for Alzheimer's disease in whites, not so much interestingly in blacks or even Hispanics. Hmm. Hispanics are somewhere in between. And, um, but if you're white and you've inherited an E4 variant, so APOE has these different variants. There's two, three, and four. If you have the E4 variant, that's what in seems to increase the risk for Alzheimer's. And if unfortunately you've inherited the E4 from both mom and dad, mm. then you know, your, your risk is significantly greater for developing Alzheimer's. Does it mean you'll get it? Not necessarily. We've even had a few centenarians who had both uh, E4s and they didn't have Alzheimer's. 
and they were white, which was really, really interesting. Hmm. Um, we do have more centenarians. You have just one E4. E4 is pretty unusual. It's the E3s that most of us have. Some of us have the E2s. I think more centenarians have E2s than the regular population, which is interesting, could have some kind of protective effect, or it could just mean that they're not E4. Mm -hmm. um, so when we see the people who have E4, yeah, we get really interested in what things are still allowing them not to get Alzheimer's. What are these resilience factors? And, and we're still at the early stages of that research. We know that women and primarily get Alzheimer's. Why would you, what would you, in your opinion, feel, or what have you come across in your research for the reason, like you mentioned before about cardiovascular, cardiovascular disease, about, you know, estrogen going down, you know, I would love to hear your take on estrogen and females and Alzheimer's and dementia. Well, there's more women with Alzheimer's because there's more women who are old compared to men. Okay. Especially when you start looking at people in their 90s. I mean, now you're looking at probably for nonagenarians. And again, aging is the number one risk factor for dementia, for Alzheimer's and other causes of dementia, like cerebrovascular disease or little strokes. Um, and women are by far the winners of the longevity marathon, okay? And, and since, there's, since there's a lot more women at these older ages, then you're going to see more Alzheimer's disease in, in women. The men who get to these oldest ages, you know, that's the other thing about women versus men. Women are a lot more resilient aging-related diseases. And the double-edged sword of that is, is that they get to older age, and that's great, but they also get aging-related diseases that they survive and have to live with. So their prevalence of chronic illnesses associated with these or disability associated with these diseases is a lot higher. Men, on the other hand, they're wimps when it comes to aging and aging-related diseases. And if they get a disease, they're going to die from it. And so the men who survive to these oldest ages, they have to be in fantastic shape. So, yeah, there are older men in their 90s and 100s but that have chronic illnesses. But if they do have those, they have them for a relatively short period of time before they pass away compared to women. Wow. So um, I think that's the main thing is this, with aging being the number one risk factor for something like Alzheimer's, because there's so many more women at these oldest ages. That's why you see more, that's why you see so much more Alzheimer's among women. Hmm. What would you say as a leading researcher in this area that you could you know, what advice would you have for our listeners when it comes to, so obviously we know that diet and lifestyle play a big role. What would be your tips for us to take away from in terms of helping our brain health? So if you do, if you are at risk of Alzheimer's, the problem is, is that cardiovascular disease and cerebrovascular disease, the narrowing of the small vessels that 
feed the brain, for example, can accelerate Alzheimer's and make it a lot worse. So whatever you can do to decrease your vascular disease risk, the better. And that means monitoring your blood pressure and keeping it on the low end. Um, and hopefully one does that without medication. And in fact, that's another really interesting thing about our centenarians. They tend to low, have low blood pressures, like around 100 systolic, 100, 105. Um, normal is around 120. And, and people talk about being worried about low blood pressure in older people and the increased risk of falls. But that, again, it's kind of like the iron study, uh, iron story. It's okay to have a blood pressure that's low if you feel great, right? It's okay to have a low iron if you feel great and don't treat it. Um, now, we do have problems. I'm also a board certified geriatrician and we have problems with older people being on blood pressure medications that gets them too low and, and they can be at increased risk of falling and you definitely don't want that. So, um, you don't want to get everybody to 100 with medications. I mean, a, a systolic blood pressure of 100. Um, but generally, uh, having a low blood pressure is normal for these centenarians. Um, and I, and I, I know I'm talking about making sure that you don't have a high blood pressure, but I just wanted to give that side of the story too. Um, certainly don't smoke regularly exercise um, and a healthy diet and having enough sleep is also critically important. Those people who don't get enough sleep are at increased risk of dementia actually and, and accelerating dementia. So having adequate sleep and that's a whole nother show. Whole other um, show. <laughs> um, and, I mean, that's also a really big part of, yeah, being perimenopausal and, yeah. and, and menopausal as well. Um, oh, I'm on a mission to help women sleep better. I, I actually, I always say I'm a menopause sleep biohacker. Um, I wear a device and we have products. We have rest us and sleep us that we'll have very shortly on our site. And I'm all about that. We actually have a, a supplement. Interesting that you're talking about blood pressure. We have a supplement called Thymoquin that in the research has shown that helps to lower blood pressure in three days. Like it's a standardized uh, thymoquinone, 3% thymoquinone, black seed oil. So there is a lot you can do, you know, with supplements too, that can help. So it's, it's so interesting that you say that I was just listening to a podcast the other day about blood pressure and how, you know, we should be doing it and taking it on our own and how, when you get it done in the doctor's office, it's generally higher because we get nervous. So finding ways to do it at home or take it at home or on other ways to do it. So I find that fascinating. Well, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I honestly, Dr. Pulse could probably speak to you for another two hours, but here's what I'm going to say. Would you come back on my show? Okay, sure. And then um, where can people find out more about you? Actually, you know what? No, I have one more question before we go. My last question would be is what would you say you learned from all the research that you've done and for everything that you've done in your studies over the years, what's like the one or two things that you have learned that you've incorporated incorporated into your life based on all the research you've done? I think it sounds like rather benign, but, um, you know, when I was growing up, age 70 or 80 sounded ancient. And then these centenarians who lived 40 years 
beyond the age of 60 really opened my eyes to what's possible. And I've, I've used the analogy that they're the marathon runners, that all of us who have the ability to run 10K realize, you know, if, if some people can run, a can run a marathon, you know, I should be able to run a 10K. And to me, that means um, if I have the right health behaviors, I should be able to live to 90. And that by, you know, my, some people might say, well, why would you want to add more years to your life it, if all that means is more years of disability? Well, if you're adding years to your life by virtue of healthy behaviors, those added years can't be unhealthy. They have to be healthy. Right. It's this idea of the older you get, the healthier you've been. And I, I think that the centenarians can provide this very optimistic and enabling view of aging um, that should really be important impetus or motivation for all of us to realize, you know, there's this real big payoff to taking better care of ourselves where, you know, the idea of living 30 years beyond the age of 60, uh, my opportunity to hopefully play with grandkids and maybe even see a great grandkid um, and to have some years in retirement that I can go off and do travel and other things I'd love to do with my wife and others, um, I think is a very enabling realization. They, the yeah. centenarians raise the bar for the rest of us. And, and I think that's been very motivating for getting me out to go spinning three times a week and, and my diet, um, and taking, I think, a lot better care of myself than I would have otherwise. Hmm. I like that. And where can people find out more about you and the work, your amazing work that you're doing? Um, thanks. They can type in um, Centenarian and Boston University. It'll take people to our, um, our the website about our work. Um, there's also a calculator that I created as part of a book I wrote called Living to 100, quite some time ago now, but that's at living to 100, 100.com. And cool. there's no, it doesn't cost anything. There's about 40 questions, which sounds like a lot, but it only takes seven minutes. And it asks questions about your lifestyle, a little bit about your family history. Um, and it spits out a life expectancy for you. It's really just a guide, a general guide of what things you're doing right and what things you're doing wrong with some subsequent advice and also that. things about screening um, for cancer, what vaccinations um, you might benefit from. And uh, people might find that useful. So I recommend going to that as well. Thank you so much. I love this. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we, will, we will hear from you again. So uh, this okay. is a goodbye. <laughs> this is to be continued. This is exactly why I do this podcast, why I created Menopause Reimagine and why I wanted to be able to bring you information from incredible experts that, you know, I, I found Dr. Pearl online while I was writing my book and I reached out to him and he said, yes. So to me, this is super exciting. And I love the fact that we're looking at other reasons as to what could be causing issues for us in this phase of life and iron who knew, right?
So really eye-opening. So I hope you enjoyed this interview. If you did, please share it because the more you share shows you care. And of course, always please leave us uh, a review. We really appreciate those reviews because that tells whatever platform you're listening to your podcasts on, to this one in particular, that you are enjoying our podcast, Menopause Reimagined. As always, I appreciate you. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you at the next podcast. <laughs>